HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash speakeasy. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Greg Benson. I'm flying solo today here in the virtual studio, live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, we are one week into phase two here in New York City. And at the top of the show, I just want to say to everyone that's back behind the stick and in the kitchens, thank you. Um, if you don't know, New York started allowing outdoor dining on Monday. And I've been out to a couple of places since then because how could I not? And I want to say to everybody who's working like crazy to keep these bars and restaurants afloat so that they'll be here when this is all over, you guys fucking rule. And what's been amazing to me in the times that I've gone out is that everybody, like everybody has been hospitable and friendly and all of you just seem are so genuinely invested in making sure that us, the people that come out, are going to have a good time. Uh, personally, I'm not back at work yet, which is why you still have so much of me on the radio. Uh, but I see all of you guys that are out there hustling harder than you ever have in your life to get these places back up and running. So if me tipping like a maniac didn't already say it, you guys are all awesome. Uh, and now let's bring in our guest who is very far away from New York City, live from Sydney, Australia. We have Tom Baker, the founder of Mr. Black Coffee Liqueur. Tom. Hey man, what's up? G'day, Greg. How you going, mate? I'm going pretty good. How's how's your morning going so far? My Sunday afternoon is lovely. Look, it is it is sunrise on a Monday morning, which is not when I do my best work. But um, you know, <laughs> needs must, mate. Needs must. I'm here. I'm here. I'm committed. We're gonna get your day off to a good start. It's kind of like you know. Oh, well, yeah. I was gonna really? make I was gonna make a joke about like it's better than coffee, but you would probably know better than me, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I've already, I'm two coffee. Can you believe seven o'clock in the morning, two coffees down? It's going to be one of those days, I think, Greg, but no, it's good, mate. It's good. It's um, a very cold winter's morning in Sydney. So um, yeah, it's going well. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, founded Mr. Black Coffee Liqueur in, uh, how long have you been running this for again? It, it, it honestly, it feels like a year, but it's been about seven, I think. Uh, we founded it back in 2013, August 2013, coming up seven years. So um, seven years next month, actually. So, yeah, it's, it's been a while. It, it, I kind of – I don't really remember life before it, but it doesn't seem like that long. We still make still make a lot of mistakes, <laughs> you know, for a seven-year-old company. Um, but, yeah, yeah, a long time. Long time. Well, I mean, that's – mistakes are where growth comes from, man. If you don't fuck up, you never learn. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, um, it's, uh, <laughs> we, uh, as long as we don't make them twice, that's, that's the only thing I'm happy to get it wrong once guys. We, 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 that's growth. No, second time is, uh, it's not as good, but yeah, no, it's been, it's been a wild ride. You know, um, we sort of started the business pre the craft spirits revolution here in Australia. Um, and when we started, there were 25 other distilleries. Now there's, what. Well, 200 i think or more north of 200 wow um you know 700 gins on the market we don't make gin but 700 gins on the market um it's just been this huge explosion of craft spirits in australia and and we were sort of lucky enough i think to start just ahead of that you know so we're a fair way down the road now which is um certainly was able to prop us up a bit coming into COVID for sure. Well, that's interesting because I kind of think of, you know, the the modern quote unquote revolution that we're going through right now, kind of starting in like the mid 2000s, like 2005, kind of in the middle of that decade. But when, when did it really kind of start to pick up steam in Australia? Good point. Um, a guy called Bill Lark um, really uh, was the formative guy that started craft spirits in Australia. Um, and I don't know the exact date. I think it was around that time. Um, and Bill Lark was really the godfather of Australian craft distilling. And he challenged, we had this very archaic law that was put in place by the big distillers that said the minimum still requirements, you know, for a distiller in Australia was like 20,000 litres. You can imagine how much, you know, they had to pay off local congressmen to get that law put in, mm-hmm. um, you know, so effectively not allow small players into the market. Uh, and Bill challenged that and then opened up distilling in Tasmania. And that's what put, really put Australia on the map in the early part of um, um, this century, you know, um, in terms of craft distilling. And, you know, there are a lot of sort of whiskey distilling in Tasmania for a long time. Um, but in terms of white spirits and non-whiskey, there wasn't a lot. Yeah, my business partner started distilling in 2007. Um, and again, you know, there was no scene, there was no industry. You know, he had a, a distillery in a cellar door that, that just, you know, it was quiet, <laughs> put it that way. And, <laughs> and now there's a queue out the door on a Saturday morning, you know. So it's, um, yes, I'd say we're definitely, definitely deep in the cycle now. But yeah, you're right. I think it probably did start certainly early 2000s um, in Australia as well, but certainly has reached its um, zenith of popularity in the last couple of years. Yeah. So, and your so your your partner was the distiller. Does that mean that you were the you kind of came in as a coffee guy and you kind of had a you know a, a Reese's moment of like, hey, why don't we mix your peanut butter and my chocolate? <laughs> like, how did how did that come about? Do you know what? That would be a much better story. That would be a great story. Um, it's actually we're actually a distiller uh, and a designer. So I uh, I was an industrial designer. I worked in a lot of packaging. Uh, I just make like making stuff that looks good and, and, you know, means something to people and resonates with people. And my business partner is sort of the opposite. Um, you know, he's really good at sitting at a bench and, and for, for days and months on end making liquids that, that taste the best in the world. Um, so it was really a combination of those two. I, I thought that was it. Like you just made a, made a great liquid, you put it in a bottle and you put it on the shelf, and then eventually, like you got some big check from like Bacardi, yeah, and a boat, uh, and then that was it. But uh, it, it turns out, turns out there's a few more steps on the way. But yeah, that was us. So I was a coffee nerd. Um, it wasn't my profession, but I was an absolute coffee nerd. I was a brister in college, and and had worked um, on a lot of uh, branding work for a lot of coffee clients, and I just love this stuff, you know. So uh, that was my my. Uh, my other contribution, but yeah, no, mostly it was a, you know, Phil was the distiller, I was the designer and together we sort of made it taste good, look good. And, and with hopefully the free market would do the rest, which it sort of did, I suppose. That's fantastic. So then how, how, in, in that case, why, why coffee? Like if you're just kind of a, a, you know, I mean, hell, I, I love coffee, but I, I have not yet created a coffee liqueur brand. What was your sort of uh, like superhero origin moment of like, yeah, we should do this. So I'll, t- I'll tell you the warts and all story. This is not the one you read on the website, right? But genuinely, Ooh, right. why did we do a co- coffee like a brand? You know, uh, it, it, it is because we didn't know any better. <laughs> you know, people always like, you should do market research before you, before you, before you start something. I swear, if I'd taken this and walked into a, a bar and said, hey, would you like to buy my artisanal coffee liquor? It's twice the price of the stuff you currently use. And it's the category no one's asking about. I don't imagine we would have got too many yeses from bartenders. But we just didn't know anything. You know, we were just a, a couple of guys. I was, you know, had that 25-year-old confidence. Um that you get from being 25 and, 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 
you know, living in a share house with a bunch of friends. So yeah, it was, it was, we just, it was blind ignorance, you know? Um, and I think from the start, people kind of respected that. They're like, I think which com- comes across in a lot of craft spirits, like just look at these guys with their fascination about this whole category that no one gives a fuck about, <laughs> you know? And, um, and that was it in the early days for sure. But if you ask my, um, ask, yeah, Philip, my, my business partner, like, Hey, Phil, why, why coffee? Like, why did you want to start there? Phil's answer is a, a lot more uh, podcast friendly. And he'd say, Tom, coffee has a culture to it. You know, people don't go to a juniper shop in the morning. They don't go to a, uh, you know, they go to coffee shops. It has a culture about it. You know, it's a, it's a product that means something to people. And, and we always talk about that at work. You know, if you ask someone if they want to try a, a, a coffee liquor, they'll say, oh, yeah, okay, sure. But if you ask them if they like coffee, They'll tell you stories of sitting in the car with their mum on the way to, you know, sport in the morning. They'll they'll tell you about having a coffee with your first girlfriend after school, you know, before you had, you know, it's, it's just this rich, you know, emotive thing that means a lot to people. So um, that's what we try and talk about, Mr. Black, not, not our category, but, 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 but people's love of coffee. Um, that's, it's, deep. It's, it's a huge thing. Yeah, that's, that's true. Cause I mean, I have, you know, I'm, I go through an embarrassing amount of coffee every day, but I do, you know, always my first memories of coffee, like years before I was even drinking it, were the fact that my dad's car, who has an even bigger coffee problem than I do, always smelled like coffee, like always, always, always. And it does kind of, uh, you know, those sense memories do kind of imprint themselves on you a little bit. Completely. They'll tell you stories of their, you know, sitting at their nonna's, you know, we have a lot of Italians in Australia, sitting at their nonna's coffee table, you know, and having a little taste of her espresso or, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a, it's a rich thing. And that, that sort of, and, you know, it's, it's, again, I don't get too deep about it, but it's also one of those things that's been, that if you've gone on into it at an early age, it's sort of always been with you, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's, uh, whether it's having coffee with a boss for a job interview or coffees before your shift or after your shift or in the middle of your shift to get you through it. It's, it's a powerful thing. So yeah, that's, that's, that, that's, that's the, that's the sweet stuff we're into, man. That's the good stuff. So, um, and you don't get that with a, a bunch of other things that taste delicious. Um, Absolutely. Sort of pretty, pretty to coffee. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the kind of the early years here. So you're, you're 25, you're full of that unique 25 chutzpah that, you know, it's a beautiful thing and thank God it goes away eventually. Um, but what is, don't think my wife could take a second, a second, uh, startup after this. I think she'll, she'll be, happy to keep, be happy to keep it at one. Well, it does. I suppose I mean, if you do it well, you only need one, right? You know, exactly. Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah, he did a couple, didn't he? Yeah. Anyway, bad example. <laughs> well, I mean, you do, you do one and then you like, like we were talking about, like you make mistakes and then you figure out what to do with the next one. But it, you know, your, Absolutely. your startup is still going well. And I think it does take a certain level of like real nerdiness, like you were talking about earlier, like being willing to like go on, like the people that make the best stuff that I know, whether it's like whiskey, absinthe, beer, fucking soap, like whatever it is, they can go on and on and on and on for hours about, you know, stuff that the, the general population might find interesting and, you know, listen to for about two minutes and then kind of mentally check out. <laughs> you, you need that sort of uh, yeah, like obsessive devotion to like what's going into your juice to make it good, I think. I completely. And that's the focus point, right? You know, that's like, we only make one thing. I know we make a, like a single origin product and a few other little things, but we just make coffee like a, like we don't make gin and vodka and rum and, you know, we haven't, you know, try to commercialize malort or anything, you know, like we just, we just make, we just make coffee and liquor, which allows us to spend just an inordinate amount of time on every part of it. So both everything from our, our liquid, our coffee sourcing, our water program, you know, your months on, on filtration or lack thereof, new equipment all the way through to even our product, how we sell it, you know, what serves resonate best in which cities, you know, what's the best structure for our business to serve, you know, the opportunity in different, you know, like everything about it is just really focused on one thing, um, which I think a lot of the people that work with us and work for us really enjoy that. You know, it's like in life, we're always pulled thousands of different ways. And, and with Mr. Black, we just get to get really, really good at one thing, um, both liquid pack company. Uh, so yeah, it's absolutely obsessive. You're right. I, I love it. I love people to do that type of stuff as well. We tend to get along. <laughs> yeah. Game, game, recognize game when it comes to being like, geekily obsessed with something yes absolutely absolutely 
So how did, so you've got, you've got this passion. You're like, you're, you know, you're dialed in. You're like, I want to do this and make this. Um, but it sounds like the market at first was a little, um, tepid seems like it was a good word. How did you, I like, mean, had we asked anyone, had we asked anyone beforehand, I think they would have been, but I think when, uh, you know, uh, so we literally, so we made the liquid, you know, that took nine months of work. Um, you know, if you want to make gin, there's a bunch of books you can buy. If you want to make whiskey, there's a bunch of training courses you can go on. If you want to make coffee and liquor, uh, that Amazon search results pretty thin on books, right? So um, we had to uh, we had to had to invent the process as well as invent the liquid. Um, so that took quite a while, but we put in a bottle, we gave it a name, you know, we designed the pack. Uh, and we just started selling to people, man. We just put it online and, and sold to humans. And then I just walked in the bars and said, hey, would you like to buy this? And they said, cool. Have you got a distributor? No. Nah. Uh, a wholesaler? No. no. Uh, have you got a liquor license? What's that? <laughs> you know? So, you know, we just, I just knew nothing. That's why I'm not, I'm not lying. Like we didn't pay tax for a year. I just didn't even know you had to do that, right? So, and you do. I'll, for anyone listening, you absolutely have to. You have to pay tax, uh, call up with us. But no, it was, um, you know, we just, we just literally walked in the bars and, and, and the great thing about bartenders is they'll try anything, right? You know, and instead of going, oh, cool, no thanks, bro. They were like, absolutely, let's try that. And um, the best thing they did, uh, well, the second best thing after buying it was they just didn't put it on the <laughs> shelf and let it grow dusty. You know, they, they made drinks with it. And I wasn't a cocktail guy. I'd never worked behind the bar. I was the, I was the coffee dude, right? So um, but to go in and, and straight away have my world opened up to, to, you know, cocktails and, and, you know, mixology and, and this sort of classic craft cocktail revolution that was definitely happening in Australia in, in 2013, it was deep into it already, you know, and just have people make coffee rum flips and, you know, cold old fashions and coffee mezcal negronis and things it just opened my eyes to this this isn't just another coffee like a man this is like this is this is the real deal and people put on menus and they started buying it and then a bunch of more bartenders and distributors wanted to buy it and then a bunch of retailers were like yeah you're gonna put you in 400 stores and i said yes obviously not not knowing what i had to do to get that much glass or anything really. <laughs> yeah so it's just this wild ride of do good work and ho- hopefully we track the right people for a long time um, and that, that worked, you know, I don't think it would work now. I think there's so many products out there on the market. Um, but, um, certainly at the time, um, and, and Australia's obsession of coffee, it worked really, really well, uh, really well and allowed us to get a fair way down the road. So, yeah, well, one, one thing I appreciate about Mr. Black is that it's kind of, it's a, like, as, as someone who, who puts drinks together for a living, uh, it, it, it's one of these ones that like you want to play with because it yeah. has, um, it's not, you know, it's not your daddy's uh, coffee liqueur. It's, it's got, it's not super sweet. It has an edge to it and it has like, you know, the complexity that a good cup of coffee should have. And frankly, that's not a tool that I think it is in a lot of bartenders toolboxes. At least it wasn't until the last 10 years. And so getting able to play around with that and get like, you know, actual coffee flavors into your your beverages is something that's kind of that was you know a novelty i can imagine completely and i think while, while there are a lot of other and, and i should say all of these things that we have at mr black were completely serendipitous <laughs> you know like they just they you know we never set out to design a product that was good for cocktails like i promise you we just wanted to make something that tasted dope right so um, but but it just so happened that the combination of a very high concentration of coffee, comparatively low sugar, um, and using a neutral grain base is a phenomenal palette for cocktails. So if we'd used, say, for instance, if you know we were came from another part of the world and we'd used a rum base, you know, or, or a cognac base, it still would have tasted equally delicious. And there's a lot of great tasting you know, coffee products made with cognac and rum, but they don't work that well in cocktails because they've got that base. Equally, had we gone down the, and, and again, don't get me wrong, I love a lot of coffee products that, that go down that um, Nola, New Orleans, chicory, spice route. It's, it, I mean, they're delicious, but when you put them in a cocktail, people have told me that they tend to get more of the chicory coming through than the coffee. But because we didn't have that history, of, uh, you know, we just didn't do it. In Australia, we have a very sort of purist, um, Italian centric sort of coffee tradition, which is, you know, no milk, no sugar. Um, it was, uh, and no flavorings and that type of thing. So it was, it was, 
you know, we made a really purest coffee product, which completely serendipitously happened to mean that made phenomenal cocktails. Uh, and it wasn't something we intended, but it's 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 a re- it's a really nice to ha- really nice to have. So in terms of right idea at the right time, you know, people were massively getting back into coffee. You know, the third or fourth wave of coffee or whatever you want to call it. Then you overlay that with the massive explosion in in craft cocktail bars around the world, and it was just sort of uh, yeah, right idea at the right time for sure. Ten five years before wouldn't have worked, and five years later there would have been twenty other people doing it. So yeah, definitely the right idea at the right time. So what you're saying is we shouldn't be on the lookout for a French vanilla blend of Mr. Black coming anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, it's the one we always get is the the de- are you going to make a decaf version? And it's sort of my my previous like we have shirts that say death before decaf, right? So previously but the amount of requests we get for it kind of make me think maybe it's just my uh, annoying Australianness. Uh, but we absolutely should do one. <laughs> I think people want it, but no, no French vanilla. I'm drawing a line at French vanilla. Pumpkin spice latte <laughs> also off the table. Um, yeah, that's no. We tend to do a bit more nerdy coffee stuff than than, than uh, French vanilla. Well, I, I definitely want to get into the nerdy coffee stuff, but we're right at about the halfway point for the show, so we're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then come back to talk with Tom Baker from Mister Black in Sydney, Australia. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner, Mary Izette, created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the taproom. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time. If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together, and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash speakeasy. And we're back. You are listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I've got Tom Baker from Mr. Black Spirit, uh, Mr. Black Coffee Liqueur hanging out in the virtual studio half a world away with me. Uh, and we were talking, uh, we, were, we were getting primed, we were getting psyched up to do a deep dive into coffee nerddom right before the break. Uh, so Tom, how exact, what was the process that you went through to find the specific type of bean and the specific uh, blend and roast that you use for, for your uh, product? Absolutely. So we, we, we sort of say it was a lot of divine intervention from the coffee gods, you know, when we started making this black and there was a lot of that. So just a lot of trial and error and thankfully a lot of the right decisions through hard work dropped in our lap. But um, what blew us away, like everything, when you get into it, you know, you sort of, well, when we made Mr. Black, it was, we got quite, I said quite quickly after nine months to a liquid that we really liked. And then we've spent the next six years really working out how to, how to, um, uh, how to make it better and understand what's really contributing to that flavor. So um, in terms of the process of selecting beans, broadly we like coffees from three separate origins to contribute in different ways. But um, we always want a coffee that tastes like coffee. And that's such a bizarre thing to say, but we always want coffee with those lovely, rich, dark, toasted flavors that people naturally associate with coffee. Um, and so for that, we'll, we'll tend to use a coffee from Colombia or Brazil, but because we've been around for quite a while now, we've got some really great relationships with specific farms. So we've been sourcing coffees from the same farms in, in Colombia for, for a number of years now. But really the, the secret source of Mr. Black, um, not so secret, but uh, is a really high proportion of coffees from Africa in there. 
But the biggest problem that we find with a lot of coffee liquors is they taste quite flabby. They taste quite flat. There's no grit in them. There's no poke. There's no acid. Um, and that's what, what African coffee, so either Ethiopian or, or Kenyan coffees, um, are brilliant for. They've got, if, if you made a coffee liquor just using, using Kenyan or Ethiopian coffees, they taste like fruit liqueurs. You know, they're incredibly high in acid, lovely, zippy, vibrant, sherbety things. Um, the reason why they tend not to be used that often is they're very expensive and very hard to, uh, hard to get reliably, but they're absolutely the secret source in making Mr. Black. So we spend a lot of time sourcing, profiling, testing these predominantly East African coffees um, to give that lovely, you know, sharp, fruity, delicious flavor to Mr. Black. And I say fruity, you know, fruit coming from a coffee space, not from a, you know, not tropical fruits. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah um, absolutely. Yeah, that's, and so that that's sort of like, that, that's what we spend almost all of our time doing, right? There's no there's no other flavorings, vanillas, caramels, or whatever, Mr. Black. it's all from that coffee, right? So we've got to make, if it doesn't come out of the roaster, the flavor's not going to be in the bottle, right? So we've got to spend all our time profiling these coffees. Well, it's interesting you should mention that about African coffees because I've I've heard that you know and and I've experienced it a little bit myself that they do tend to have those like really kind of bright fruit notes and it's funny if you talk to like the super hardcore coffee nerds like the real like guys that have you know they've soldered their own pour over system at home uh, you know <laughs> yeah. they'll. yeah it's like they'll they'll tell you that you know like what we think of as coffee is really just kind of like you know it's it's more it's more the roast than the flavor of the actual bean so is that um, a challenge yeah. kind of hitting that is there is there a sweet spot in between like we want to highlight the flavors of this uh wonderful plant because you know not all coffees taste alike just like you know not all tomatoes taste alike not all berries taste alike um but at the same time give people what they are expecting when they think of coffee completely and that's sort of in a lot of respects why making a blended product is really great right because with coffee um uh we don't just use one roast so in mr black there's not one individual roast profile with one coffee that goes into making the blend it's three or four coffees roasted three or four different ways so we're doing everything from really nice you know really touching on the lighter side of roast to accentuate the coffee character um, versus, you know, the character of, of the plant versus all the way down to really dark. I think you'd probably call them like a city roast or a French roast for a very small proportion of it. So we do capture those dark roasted, toasty, Maillard, you know, classic, um, you know, toasted caramelized flavors, which are just so unctuous and moorish to drink. So um, we can use both of them. And I think for a lot of people, it's really akin to whiskey, right? You know, whiskey blending, you want some really light, not particularly <laughs> long age, certainly for making blends. So you get those lovely estuary bright notes, but you also want those lovely robust mids and deeps, you know, older style whiskeys or, or, or malt, um, especially to bring that, that character through. So it's very much the same with coffee and we get to use both. So imagine in our palate, we've got the coffees we use, you know, be it from different origins and then we've also got the roast profile and then we've also got the extraction as well so we can um you know we vary different extraction levels on different coffees and throughout the process um to make sure that we're, we're we're not over and we're not under extracting each coffee everything's coming out bang where it should um so we get that lovely desirable flavor so um yeah for sure it's 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 not the, I always say, yeah, it's not, it's not good by accident, Mr. Black, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we've made, you know, I think a, a millionth bottle will come out of the distillery this year. Um, you know, we've made you know, thousands and thousands of batches of it. Um, we have an extraordinary amount of data on how to make it taste the way it does. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not good by accident. That's for sure. So when you, when you talk about extraction levels, like what, is, what is that exactly? Is that, um, cause what I'm thinking of is, you know, when I, suffer from the needing coffee while making coffee paradox and I'll leave my <laughs> beans in the French press for way too long. Cause I just forget about it. And, and it, it pulls out a lot more of those kind of oily flavors. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah. So you can, in terms of extraction of coffee. So first of all, you can measure it. You can get a thing called a TDS meter. So total dissolved solids. So you can measure extraction of coffee. Um, so we have TDS targets that we need to hit on, on all our coffees. Um, but obviously what goes into that is time, temperature, grind size, distribution, things like that. So we've got a number of things. And given that we don't refrigerate while we make cold brew, that the quantities we make it would be environmental vandalism uh, to, to refrigerate. Um, we, we, um, 
we deal with our sort of natural room temperature brewing, um, which means that we have to be very on top of all our other variables to make sure our, our, our extraction is right. But yeah, for sure, you can absolutely over extract coffee. Um, and I read a phenomenal paper the other day on on the importance of of grind size in in espresso. And pretty much the the hypothesis of the paper was that when you make coffee. Um, unless you're very, very, very good at it and have a, you know, sieves and things to make sure your grind sizes, you know, the flavor of coffee that we know and love is a combination of very under extracted coffee and very over extracted coffee. And then some a little bit in the middle, <laughs> um, which is, we, um, which makes the, the, certainly the espresso we all know and love. The problem is if you leave hot water with coffee for a very long time, you get over extracted coffee, which there's only one option, you know, which is just heavy over extraction, which will, uh, naturally make things a lot more bitter and extract more unpleasant flavors from the coffee. Um, so yeah, there is a, there is a, a right amount of time for sure. Um, and if you go too long, um, yeah, there's no return. The other point as well is have you ever like tried cold French press coffee? It's not good, you know, and, not- and we can all, we all relate to that. You know, when you go and you've had a coffee on your desk and you take a swig out of it, right. You know, and it's, it's been there and it's gone cold. It's super sour. Right. And, and that, that, sour flavor it comes from the development of an acid that happens when when coffee cools down and gives it that sort of undesirable flavor and that's why when people ask oh why do you use cold brew you know um uh, because people drink cold cocktails you know there's a real unpleasant flavor that's generated when you chill down hot coffee um and uh, when we do cold brew we never have to chill it down right it's cold to start with so it means we, we don't develop any of those unpleasant flavors during production it's just it's always delicious so that's your without without giving away too much of this the you know the secret twenty three herbs and spices or whatever that you use. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's what's the process that you guys use going from cold brew to distillation or? Uh, oh yeah, how 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 do you make your stuff? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, completely. So it sounds like in the same way that when you say you make beer, it's like oh you just get barley and add water and yeast and makes beer, right? This will sound really simple. But the actual ins and outs for the quite complex. So we effectively make a really constant, like hyper concentrated cold brew coffee, uh, and we add wheat vodka, vodka and sugar to that. So in short, it's it's cold, it's coffee, roasted coffee with water, which we then extract. We add wheat vodka to, touch of sugar, stick it in the bottle. Um, actually, getting that uh, cold brew coffee extract to a phenomenal level of concentration without introducing undesirable bitter flavors to it really quite difficult. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, the process of we have no flavors in it, right? So the process of actually getting that that roasted coffee to the point where it's going to make a phenomenal liqueur um, is also quite challenging. And then with the addition of alcohol as well, um, you, you know, coffee's got a lot of protein. I think liquid coffee is like one and a half percent, certainly in our concentration, one and a half or two percent protein. No so shit. when you add ethanol, ethanol to things with protein in them, uh, it drops sediment, right? Because it denatures the protein. So then that introduces a whole other step of I call it processing but you know separation that we need to do to get protein sediment out and then once you've got that getting sugars dissolved without introducing any other liquid which would you know dissolve the flavor also quite complex so it sounds simple make coffee uh, add some add some neutral grain alcohol to it and a bit of sugar and stick a label on it and sell it to Bacardi or whatever I'm still waiting for that last bit but it sounds simple but uh <laughs> it's uh the actual ins and outs of it um it, it, you could introduce issues at every one of those points. And that's where we see a lot of companies fall down. You know, their roast profiles aren't up to scratch. And this is why most coffee liquors for most companies aren't very good, right? Because they don't know what they're doing with the coffee. They work with a local coffee roaster who either makes them some cold brew uh, or, or some roasted coffee. It hasn't got the concentration there. It hasn't got the balance. You know, they add some neutral grain alcohol to it. Uh, it's washed out the flavor. It doesn't taste very good or they had some rum or something. And then they dump a bunch of sucrose in there because, you know, it's too hot and flavorless. And then all of a sudden they've diluted their flavor even more through the addition of sugar. So they've got this washy thing that doesn't taste like much and they've just added a bunch of sugar to it. And then they're like, ah, well, we'll just add some spices and vanilla to it, you know, to make it taste like something that they can sell. And then they've made this product that none of them particularly internally like, you know, and then because no one really likes it, their sales reps don't like it. They don't take any time to educate the trade on how to make drinks with it or what coffee is or how amazing this plant is, you know, and the profound impact it's had on the world. Um, and then that's how you get, you know, a category of thousands of products that no one really gives a shit about, you know, and, and we're sort of the opposite of that. You know, we do everything in-house. We know precisely what we're doing. 
Um, and we've spent seven years, you know, um, and a phenomenal amount of time and money educating the trade and consumers about what coffee is and why it tastes the way it does and how fucking marvelous it is to drink. And, and when it's used well in a cocktail, um, the depth and complexity it can bring, bring to a drink, you know, without having to be an Irish coffee or an espresso martini, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's um, – it's a, it's a crazy thing, but there's sort of a reason why most of them aren't good um, and, and what that means downstream for consumers. Yeah. And and when you talked about education, this is one thing that I wanted to ask you about is is um, what is sort of the, the general state of coffee as, as a plant and as an industry? Like I know that it's a big concern for um, uh, agave producers, the lack of genetic diversity that's happening because of the, you know, sudden intense interest in yeah. what up yeah. until more recently than a lot of people realized was a pretty niche product. Like what is, Completely. what is kind of the general state of the, the coffee market globally? Coffee's in it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, coffee's great. So the, the benefit for us is that we sort of have a foot in both camps. So we're sort of in specialty coffee world as well as booze, right? Which is, so we get twice the nerdy chats, which I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of, but <laughs> coffee's good. On, so on, on, on one hand, the industry's booming, especially the stuff that we like, which is specialty grade, high quality producers, hand picked, you know, premium shit, right? Is going really well because in general, the world is less but better, right? And specialty coffee coffee is, is, is outpacing growth of regular coffee. People are, you know, more readily choosing a single origin Kenyan as opposed to a Nescafe, you know, uh, that type of thing, right? So specialty coffee is going really well. And what that means is, is more money going to communities to develop more specialty coffee. So every time you buy a bottle of Mr. Black or you buy a coffee from a cool hipster coffee shop, um, uh, just a lot of money makes its way back to origin because a lot of these companies in the space do genuinely give a fuck about how the world works and, and understand that the best way to improve the lives of millions of people is to buy a nice coffee, right? Um, so on that hand, on that side of the seesaw, it's going really well, you know, because a lot of communities around the world are making better coffee, which they're getting paid more for, which in turn allows them to buy better tractors and better processing plants and charge more for their coffees. It's all good. On the other hand, you know, um, they say in the wine industries, you, you won't find any climate skeptics amongst winemakers. It's the same in coffee. You find no climate change skeptics amongst coffee growers, um, and especially in East Africa. So Kenya um, and Ethiopia um, have, have, you know, dramatic floods um, and um, periods of drought, um, and they're really experiencing um, uh, the, the profound effects of climate change on, on coffee growing. So... Um, on one hand, it's 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 amazing, it's booming. We're getting more diversity, more um, you know cultivation in in some amazing origins. You know, we're working on a, a product to come out soon, which is from Peru, right? You know, coffee grown in the Andes. It's awesome, you know. But on the other hand, you know, um, other places are doing it really tough because um, there's just not much as much water as there used to be, you know, and um, it could be quite ch- challenging. So, uh, good and bad, I'd say, uh, good and bad. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's great that the attention is being paid to the industry and these problems that are happening. And now it's, it's up to those of us that consume these products to actually like make the choices that we make when we buy them and, and use that education to do something about it. Completely. And in coffee, it's sort of easy, easy and easier than a lot of things, you know, you buy from small roasters from origins you've never heard of, you know, it's great that that that's money going to the right spot. And if you see fair trade or direct trade, or even just from a small company that, that cares about what it does, you know, you are making a substantial, your, your, your choice of what to buy makes a substantial contribution to coffee getting better, not getting worse, which is just awesome. So good. Absolutely. And that's why I love, I love that there is, uh, you know, fascination with these smaller, more kind of niche brands, because the niche brands have, you know, the ability to actually care about these things. Then, you know, they don't have, you know, a boardroom full of shareholders that they need to satisfy with quarterly profits. I mean, obviously everyone likes quarterly profits, but completely if you're I'm a still, smaller I'm still waiting to see what they are. I'm told they're really good when you get them, but I haven't <laughs> I haven't quite I haven't quite had that first hand experience yet. But exactly. really looking forward to that day, man. That'll be sweet. I've heard they're a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really quite nice. We always, always talk about, we talk to the government a lot about this. It's like 
craft distilling is so wildly inefficient, <laughs> you know, like I've done tours of, of like big distilleries, right. And big breweries, like, like Tanqueray, like eight, like there's like eight people that work in the distillery. <laughs> you know what I mean? They make like 40 million bottles of gin a year. And there's like eight people, you know, uh, uh, that work in this control room. There's like 15 people that work at our distillery, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> make 350,000 bottles a year. Like it's not, it, it's so wildly inefficient, It's but it's great. You know, it's good because, you know, we charge a premium for it and we don't give shareholders money. We, we pay staff with it. But yeah, they're so wildly inefficient. You, you add up all the people that work for craft distilleries in Australia and, and, and most of the money that we make goes in the wage bills, which is a, a good thing. It's what we want. So, um, yeah, but it's always funny when you go to see this huge distilleries and they have half the number of staff that we do. And always, uh, maybe, maybe there is some room for efficiency there. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-efficiency. I'm way too OCD for that. But I, I think you're right. I think there is something to be said for like, you know, a, a company that is – small and nimble enough to be able to be hands-on about every single aspect of their product, you know? Completely. And it's that, it's that, you know, like we, uh, we, you know, this is written on the wall, uh, uh, like we make stuff, you know, and, and everyone in this company is only one or two people away from people that actually make stuff. Um, and that's our competitive advantage, right? Is that we can have this amazing pipeline of gorgeous single origin products. We are always profiling and trying different liquids. We can, you know, we do, great one-off projects with, you know, we had Eric Lorenz, you know, one of the world's best bartenders at Origin with our global brand ambassador, Martin Hudak, you know, picking fucking coffee, you know, six months ago, you know, like we can do that type of stuff. We can then get that coffee and take it back to Australia and make a coffee liquor out of it. You know, we can do that type of thing, you know, because we make stuff. Um, and most companies don't make stuff. You know, they're a, a leatherhead and a business card and a, 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 a you know, MGP subscription or a, an outsource thing where we actually – we have people that wear high-vis vests and steel cap boots um, and roast coffee, and, yeah, it's awesome. It's our competitive Absolutely. advantage. For uh, well, let's – I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Australian coffee culture, which which sounds, you know, by and large, obviously, you know, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people and they don't all agree on the same thing. But it sounds like yeah, by yeah. and large uh, they like their coffee the way that I do, which is black, black and hot. Well, look, I don't want to say you're wrong, Greg, but a little bit not not right. So in Australia, in Australia, we like milky coffee. So it's sort of like this crazy thing. We, so we have a – people always wonder why coffee is so prolific in Australia, right? Um, and it's it's um, by virtue of the fact that after World War – you know, we should be a tea-drinking country like the US. We should drink tea. We're an English colony, right? Um, and we haven't quite kicked them out yet, but we, um, we, we should be a tea drinking coffee. But what happened after World War II was this huge migration, you know, from Greece and from Italy, um, uh, you know, post-World War II. And they settled in the inner city suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne. And with them, they bought espresso. And that was sort of a, a really interesting thing. Um, and, you know, so and Italians love cappuccinos and things like that. That's all a very Italian way of drinking, have a cappuccino in the morning, right? So that's really what Australians have taken to. If you ask most coffee shops, and it is changing, but what their balance of like milk-based coffee drinks versus black coffee, they'd say like 95% milk-based. So Hmm. where I find in the US, it's like, yeah, sure, people drink cappuccinos, lattes, all that type of stuff, but there's a lot of black coffee and a prolific amount of cold brew drunk. Um, so because we have a very Eurocentric coffee culture, um, yeah, we tend to drink a lot of, a lot of cappuccinos, flat whites, lattes, that type of thing. Um, and a comparatively small amount of, of, of Americanos and cold brews. So, um, it's, it's not better or worse. It's just different. Um, and, uh, it's another, certainly in, you know, getting the milk right <laughs> is, is another element of, a of, a uh, a coffee shop's palate they need to get. But, yeah, predominantly um, uh, Italian coffee heritage. Um, we have a prolific amount of Italians in Australia. They say Melbourne's like the second largest Italian city, right? Like, um, you know, there are, there are literally millions of, of people of Italian heritage that still live in, in, in Melbourne and inner city Sydney. So um, it's very much where our coffee culture comes from for sure. And like everything in Australia, you know, we steal it and make it our own. Um, and uh, um, we did that with coffee. So Australia's just been consistently innovating around that sort of Italian heritage but made modern for, for the last 60, 70 years. Um, and that's why we have just such a prolific um, coffee industry here in Australia. Um, it was bought here on boats and, and, and we now export it all over the world. 
that's fantastic. And, and yeah, you're right. The milk is hard. I remember from a, a stretch in my career where I had to fill in for a barista uh, for about a week, I was <laughs> unbelievably reliable at fucking up the milk every single yeah. time. Um, completely. Yeah. That, that kind of surprises me though a little bit because uh, does that, does that make it more difficult to sell uh, a product that is, you know, very unabashedly like you're going to get the full force of this plant, all of, all of the flavor, the sharpness, we're not going to pull any punches here. Does it make it harder to sell that in a country that's very kind of flat white focused? So from a flavor profile, no. People here love coffee, right? So from a flavor profile, no. But from an innovation, I want to try new things in the coffee space thing, it can be quite a challenge. And this is what I've always loved about the US. And, and you know, Mr. Black has been really sort of um, an unprecedented success for us in North America, right? It's gone, you know, we've been there for a couple, two and a half years now. It's gone so well over there. But the US, you just guys love new stuff, you know? And if you go and look at the coffee aisle in Whole Foods, you know, there's just thousands of, there's coffee sodas, there's coffee, you know, milk things. There's 30 different types of cold brew with every different type of milk. I didn't know you could milk a flaxseed, but you can, you know? So there's all that on the, on the shelf. Completely. It got squeezed really hard, but you can. Um, but, but, and that's why I, I love about the US. We're in Australia. It's, we, we are really innovative in the coffee space, but tends to be more around origin and sourcing and single origins and, and that type of thing, as opposed to the wild array of new coffee products. And cold brew, for instance, you know, doesn't work in Australia. Like people just don't, I mean, even though it's like, blindingly fucking hot for, for, you know, nine months of the year here. It, people don't drink cold brew. They, they, it's like, you know, a hundred degrees out and they drink a cappuccino. Um, so, but that's, so in that respect, it's the, the, the flavor profile, not an issue, but um, Australians are like a quite conservative in their coffee, coffee repertoire. Then we got off the plane at JFK three years ago and realized it was on, you know, anything with coffee in it, in any format, it's all good, bro. You know, and um, and it was like a duck to water in the US for us uh, for that reason. <laughs> that that you know, all of a sudden, cold brew is a construct. People drink it. It's like, you know, it's been consistently popular for ten years now, right? You know, um, and uh, and yeah. So for that reason, the US it just accelerated out of the gate so quickly because I think that was largely due to the fact that you guys are happy to give something new a go. You know, categories are less constrained. People aren't like, no, there's no such thing as coffee soda. It is it can be whatever it wants to be in the US. So I think that's the key difference culturally. Um, less so the flavor, more so just attitudes to, to new shit. But this is this is the country it's that not to we say thought. Australia's anti-progress. Yeah, I'm not saying we're anti-progress <laughs> here in Australia. I just say with coffee, we're still a very traditional coffee country. Um, uh, in the masses, you know, where I think the U.S. Uh, people are, um, you know, maybe it's a bit newer to the specialty coffee scene and all that. People will just take whatever, you know, and and drink it on face value, not on 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 cultural significance. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, we're we're the country that uh, rethought the chicken sandwich by putting the chicken on the outside and all the other stuff on the inside. So, <laughs> we'll try, yeah, that we'll was anything uh, once, man. <laughs> I imagine in the list of top ten inventions, it's like. Like automobile, uh, malaria vaccine, iPhone, uh, KFC, double down. We made the bun out of chicken. <laughs> I think it's up there. I think I saw that on the list. It really is. Yeah, exactly. And, and just just the <laughs> sheer like chutzpah it takes to look at the sandwich and say, "There's something <laughs> we're doing wrong about this." Like, there's all this know, wasted in, in space the- on the sides that we're doing nothing with. In the Philippines, uh, so in a prior life, I did actually used to do a lot of work for KFC. And uh, in a, we were doing some work for them in the Philippines, and that sort of double-down chicken thing had gone so well, you know, the buns made of chicken. So they're like, what else can we do? So they did the chizza, which was the a chicken pizza. Is, yeah, so you make the base out of chicken. Which to an Australian is just like a palmy, you know, it's just like a parmigiana, you know, it's a schnitty with cheese and some ham on the top. But uh, yeah, the chizzer, I thought the name was the worst bit of it. But hey, it's all really well worked. No accounting for taste, mate. It's, it sounds like it sounds uh, like a rejected member of the Wu Tang Clan. 
It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> I'm a little ashamed. I kind of thought we were at the forefront of like putting fried chicken in places where fried chicken really shouldn't go. I can't oh, believe. Not even in the it. top 10. You're not even in the top 10. The, the, the Southeast Asia and just in generally, you know, Asia loves fried chicken. The Japanese, what they do with fried chicken, you wouldn't believe. The Malaysians, the Filipinos love fried chicken. Oh, they're the, they're the kings of fried chicken innovation. Popeye's just making you burger and you guys run out to the stores and buy it, you know. Or in, 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 in Manila, mate, they're doing things with chicken that you didn't believe possible. Oh, my God. That's – well, we got we got to get a we got to get a fried chicken expert on the next episode up. of the You're show. Slipping, yeah. You're slipping, yeah, that's a good next next week on the Speakeasy. Uh, well, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the the best way to do that? Uh, what's what's your social media flavor of choice? Yeah, so follow us on Instagram at Mr. Black Spirits. You message us, there's a good chance you get me. Um, we got a few people that work in our marketing team, but Instagram is generally just me. Um, yeah, grab us on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You know, email. Can you believe at um, yeah, Mr. Black Spirits um, on Instagram and mrblack.co, not .com. If I had a dollar every time someone asked me if it was meant to be .com, um, I uh, wouldn't have to sell coffee in the anymore. So, yes, mrblack.co. <laughs> to be um, quarterly profits, email, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, quarterly profits. Uh, be it. Yeah, we're available in we're available in 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 most countries now. About fifteen countries around the world: Australia, US, UK, fifteen states in the US. So it's not hard to get your hands on a, a bottle, of Mister Black. That's fantastic, man. Um, well, that is just about it for the speakeasy here this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, really quick before I go, I do want to mention that Heritage Radio Network, uh, which is the host of this fantastic podcast, as well as almost 40 other weekly shows, is doing its annual summer fundraising drive. Uh, if you go to heritageradionetwork.org and pledge $60, you and a friend will get two custom-designed Heritage Radio Network bandanas. They're awesome. Um, and even if, you know, if times are lean and you just want to give what you can, uh, that is great. Any any donor, any size is perfect. If you want to just go on there and leave Damon, Souther, and me a tip, uh, feel, feel free. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, and then while you're there, check out all the other fantastic shows that Heritage Radio Network does. Uh, we will catch you right back here next week. But in the meantime, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Thanks. Really appreciate it. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in the rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sun in the air. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.